All right, we've got uh, three announcements before we get started this evening. First of all, we've been praying for uh, J- Pastor Jody Brown in Atlanta, uh, Illinois, and he is doing much better and his wife is doing much better, but the Lord took his mother home uh, last Friday evening. So, um, uh, but other than that, that's all I've heard uh, in relation to them. Then the second announcement is we will be having communion this coming Sunday morning, and that means that you need to be prepared. So have uh, unleavened bread, matzah, saltine, something of that nature, and uh, grape juice or wine, whatever you prefer since you're at home. And then uh, we will be also just a reminder for teens that there's a Monday night Camparete uh, Bible class online, a Zoom meeting. And for information on that, go to the Camparete Uh, website, and you can sign up for that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking with him. We know that when we sin, we are no longer walking by the Spirit. We're no longer walking with the Lord in the light. We are walking according to our sin nature. And so in order to recover, we need to confess sin. That's uh, simple, that uh, the only thing we do is to admit, acknowledge our sin to God, and instantly we are forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, what a great comfort it is to come together to hear the promises of your word, to be refocused in our lives that in, in the midst of the uncertainty and the chaos of this pandemic, that we know that we can trust you and that you're in control. Nothing about this has surprised you. Uh, nothing about this has caught you off guard. You are greater than any virus, greater than any problem, and we pray, Father, that you would Help us, strengthen us, and that we might learn to trust you more uh, consistently in the midst of this time. There's so many who are facing very serious problems with jobs, with uh, finances, rent, mortgage payments, Father, and those especially who have this disease. We pray for your uh, comfort and that you would use this as an opportunity to redirect people's attention to you. Father, we pray for our health. We pray for the health of this congregation. We pray that you might protect us from this virus and that you might sustain and strengthen us if indeed some of us come down with it. 
Father, we pray for us tonight as we focus on your word that uh, we would be instructed and that we would be responsive to that instruction and the correction that comes from the study of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 16, 2 Samuel 16, and we're continuing what we began last week looking at the contrast between grace orientation and arrogance. And tonight we'll focus most on these examples here in chapter 16 of arrogance, but we'll see the grace orientation of David in the process. And what we learn from Scripture is that arrogance is always self-destructive. Arrogance began in the heart of of, uh, Lucifer, perfect angel who served God in the highest position among all of the angels, and then he began to lust after all of the worship and adoration that God received, and he wanted it for himself. And so he wanted to be another God. He wanted to be higher than God. It was a rejection of authority, which always comes with arrogance. That is one of the characteristics that we're studying in this section, that uh, rejection of authority, disobedience to authority, setting oneself up as a little God is always an example of Uh, of arrogance. Now, what we've seen so far as we've gone through this uh, rebellion of Absalom is that this is an extremely dramatic narrative. It it seems long to us. It covers about four or five chapters. And as we go through it, we move back and forth from one scene to another. First, we have a scene where we're looking at Absalom. Then we have a scene where we're looking at David. Then we go back to Absalom and back to David. And so just to give you an orientation, we saw in chapter 15 that Absalom began the revolt. And then David heard about it as Absalom is bringing his forces to Jerusalem, which didn't take long. He would have left Hebron in the morning, and he would have taken him most of the day to get to Jerusalem. And David hears about this, and he... He flees, and while he is fleeing, while he is not far from the what we call the old city of David uh, today, uh, Absalom is able to go into uh, into that city, and this is what we'll discover when we get down uh, to ver- verse uh, verse fifteen, when Absalom and all the people uh, enter into Jerusalem. So Absalom enters Jerusalem in sixteen fifteen. Through 1714, we see the advice of Ahithophel. He gives two pieces of advice to Absalom. Then Absalom seeks for confirmation from Hushai, who is a secret agent and mole from David, and he is able to turn the king um, or turn Absalom against the advice of Ahithophel. Of course, he probably had a little help from God. So Hushai then informs David of Absalom's plot and his intent. And then the fifth section, Absalom moves against David in 2 Samuel 17, 24 to 26. And then David, we see at about that same time, is moving across the Jordan, and there he will be resupplied. After that, their battle will be fought, Absalom will be killed, and then we see the grief, the grief of David. Now, one of the things that we are learning in this section is the difference between arrogance and grace. 
the contrast between human viewpoint solutions, which are always based on arrogance. Human viewpoint is the result of rejecting God, rejecting God's revelation, and coming up with what the creature thinks is a better idea. It is always driven by arrogance, and it always sounds good, or a lot of times it sounds good, and it is attractive. Uh, That's in contrast to the divine viewpoint solution, which is always consistent with God's grace and humility. And so we have this contrast between the sin nature on the left side of the screen that it drives all human viewpoint, all paganism, all false religions, everything, because the Word of God presents a unified view of reality, a unified view of of truth. And so there's no contradictions between Genesis and Revelation. And so the divine viewpoint is always based on grace and humility. The The two verses, to contrast the two, are both found in wisdom literature, a, the Proverbs 14:12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It is always self-destructive. And then a wisdom psalm extolling the value of God's word is Psalm 119:50. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. So we started last time. I'm going to run through about the next uh, 12 slides very quickly just to put us back on focus of what we've been studying is what the Bible teaches about grace orientation. We started with a definition. It's so important always to define your terms. Grace is unearned favor and unmerited kindness. It's the application of God's love to creatures who are not deserving of his love at all. They deserve just the opposite. So grace flows from the character of the one who loves and is not based on the actions, attitudes, or personality of the object. And so we see an example of grace orientation and actually impersonal love in the way David responds to both Ziva, the servant of Mephibosheth, and also Shemai, who is a Benjamite from the um, house of Saul. And we see how there's no personal relationship really with either of these two men, and yet David, David exhibits grace and kindness to both of them, even though they throw it back in his face. Second thing we saw is grace orientation is a spiritual skill, and we also covered that in the last two weeks in the Thursday night class as we were dealing with the fact that God is our great comfort in the midst of a crisis. And we went through the uh, 10 spiritual skills. So if you haven't listened to that, you might want to go over to that special and listen to the uh, spiritual skills, the last two lessons in that series. Third, grace orientation builds on faith. the faith rest drill. The faith rest drill is trusting God, doing what God says to do, and relaxing in God's provision and his protection. God is going to supply our, as promised, that he supplies our every need, and we just need to relax, go about our responsibilities as unto the Lord, and let God take care of the rest of it. We looked at several elements of grace. We saw that the first man to be said to have received grace from the Lord is Noah. Although we know that Adam did and Eve did, and we know that Abel did and Seth did, and 
all of the others in the line all the way down to Noah. But Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord as God is about to bring judgment on the entire world uh, during the um, the time of the rebellion where certain fallen angels called the sons of God entered into uh, uh, the earth, took on human the appearance of human bodies and functions, and took human wives as an attempt to destroy the genetic purity of the human race. So what we identified is, first of all, grace orientation begins at salvation because to be saved, you have to accept God's grace. You have to accept, accept his free gift of, of salvation, that you're not going to do anything to earn it or deserve it, but this is out of the kindness of God's character that he gives to us this perfect package of salvation, and we have to respond by simply trusting in him, accepting it, and understanding grace then leads to humility. Humility is a recognition that that uh, we are not responsible for our salvation at all, and it's the opposite of arrogance in the Scripture. Romans 12.3 says defines arrogance as someone who thinks more highly of himself than he ought to think, and that is the characteristic of the sin nature and the characteristic of every human being that comes out of the womb. From that point on, arrogance controls because arrogance is is the prime mover in the in the sin nature, and that's the only nature that every baby has is a sin nature. They may look cute, they may look sweet, but they are just a sin nature wrapped up in the flesh, and they need to be taught and trained to bring discipline to that uh, sin nature. Another aspect of grace orientation and humility is obedience to authority. And this is really interesting because you find a lot of believers who are really uh, not very submissive to authority. And and uh, we see this all the time. It's true for me. It's true for you. We cloak it. We hide it. We talk like we're really being obedient. But that's the deception of the sin nature. The heart, remember, is deceptive and wicked above all things who can know it. And so we all have this trend in our sin nature to do it the way we want to do it and not necessarily according to some authority. Authority orientation has to do with being obedient to the person in authority even when we don't like what we're supposed to do, even when it's very uncomfortable or may make us miserable or we have various other personal problems with it. Jesus Christ kept his focus on the the joy set before him, and he endured the cross. He was obedient. This is what Philippians 2.8 said. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. It wasn't pleasant, but he had his focus on the end result and was obedient to God. He never, never faltered. We also learned that grace uh, is related to the concept of gratitude so that we are to be thankful in all things. This is one of the things we don't see a lot today. Someone recently observed to me that in all of the different current events that she reads, she said, this generation, and that includes anybody who's alive today, is extremely ungrateful. We do not express thankfulness for what we have but we are always wishing for something else. 
1 Thessalonians 5.18, we're to give thanks in everything. And Ephesians 5.20, we're to give thanks always for all things. That leads to teachability and growth. We cannot learn if we're not humble. We cannot exchange the human viewpoint in our soul for the divine viewpoint of God's word if we're not teachable. Teachability means that we are ready to have our wrong ideas and wrong opinions exposed by the truth of God's word. And only when we let the Holy Spirit change us and we replace the foolish ideas of our soul with the wise ideas of Scripture can we have spiritual growth. We grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Second Peter 3.18. And then the last point I covered last time was that we must learn God, that God's grace is always sufficient in every situation. It doesn't matter how horrible it might be. It doesn't matter how sick or ill or impoverished or how how much suffering is going on. Uh, God's grace is always sufficient, but we have to go to his word to learn about it. And if we don't know about it from God's word, then we will not learn about it. Someone today from England emailed me after listening to my first John series, and he said, what about Christians who never learn any of these things? Can they grow spiritually? Well, no, if you don't don't learn God's word, if you aren't taught God's word, then you can't replace the human viewpoint in your soul. So that's Romans 12 too. You you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and that only comes by the teaching of God's word. And so this man who uh, is a pastor, just has a small group that he teaches the Bible to, uh, recognize that that none of these spiritual truths that are so prominent in First John are taught anywhere by anybody in England. And he asked me about that, and I said, well, if you go back and study what was taught in England on the spiritual life 150 years ago, it was it was everywhere, and it was common, but not anymore. So they have lost that, and that's where we're headed as a nation. Uh, forgetting to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And that's just arrogance. And so tonight we're primarily looking at the arrogance of human viewpoint. Now, where does this come from? Let's stop for a minute and go back to the New Testament and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This is a, a very critical passage on... Uh, what happens, and it describes the rebelliousness of the human soul. The arrogance begins with a rejection of God. This is described uh, starting in verse 18. I only have the first verse up there. I didn't want to put the entire section up there. For the wrath of God, the wrath of God here describes the temporal judgment or discipline of God on the human race. And so God brings discipline on the human race for their negative volition, for their rejection of him. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now then they are described, these men are described as those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And there's a vast number of human beings through history 
that are characterized by that. It is not saying that every human being does, but they do to some degree or another, but that this is the characteristic of the sin nature is to suppress the truth, the truth, not a truth. It is absolute truth. This is where we run into a problem today is because the average person on the street has no concept of absolute truth. And he immediately will say, well, there's no such thing as absolute truth. And so your response should be, really, is that absolutely true? So he said, well, yes, it is. Well, then you've got a contradiction. So you either have nothing that is absolutely true in which you can't know anything, or there are absolute truths which you can know. But the human, the sin nature and arrogance rejects those. And verse 19 goes on to say, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Every human being knows it internally. He knows God exists. He understands that he will be accountable to God, and yet he is suppressing that truth. It's like what you may see in some sort of of horror movie where somebody is trapped down in the basement and they keep banging on a door to get somebody's attention, and that's God because God has been chained into the basement of their soul, and so they go down and they pile more mattresses and more soundproofing on top of that uh, trap door in order to stop hearing God's the noise that God makes, and yet God uh, is able to continue to get louder and louder and louder, and he does different things to get people's attention like this um, pandemic right now. This should be getting people's attentions. I hear some reports that it is, but I don't see a whole lot of evidence of this, of people turning to God. What may be known about God is manifest in them. There is no such thing as a genuine atheist. Every person knows that God exists. They just may have him so suppressed that they no longer recognize it, but God's word says they know it. For They know it internally, for God has shown it to them. And the next verse says this is an external revelation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Notice the contrast there. Something invisible is seen. That ought to catch your attention. His invisible nature is clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, and uh, even the even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They are accountable. They are responsible to God. That is the first divine institution that man is accountable and responsible to God for the decisions that he makes. Uh, And then it goes on to say, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile or empty in their thoughts. Now, once you uh, become empty in your thoughts, something has to take its place. So once you have a vacuum in your soul, in your thinking, something else fills it up. Once you create a vacuum by the removal of truth, then something's going to come in to fill that up. Creation abhors a physical vacuum, and the same is true in terms of the mentality of our souls. And so uh, once they became empty in their thinking by suppressing truth, then something comes in to replace truth. And every idea that comes in is false. 
Every idea that comes in is grounded in arrogance, and that's what we describe as human viewpoint. And so they became empty in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image. This is talking about physical idolatry. So they replace the truth with something. Truth is always replaced with a, with a phony and with an inadequate substitute, and in this case, it is idolatry. And then God gives them up to unrighteousness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So this is worked out in terms of physical lust. And then it's summarized. What they've done is that they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. First thing God does is he gives them up to vile passions, The women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. So homosexuality isn't going to bring God's judgment. Homosexuality, the LGBTQ movement, is God's judgment to destroy this country. And so often you hear people say, well, you know, we have to... Um, be tolerant and all of these other things. Well, it doesn't. We we are not to be unkind. Uh, that is just their sin nature, as opposed to other people's sin nature. But they need to learn about the love of God and what God has done is to bring this judgment upon people because the culture as a whole has rejected rejected God. All of this flows out of the sin nature. As I've pointed out again and again, the sin nature produces both morality and immorality. Unbelievers can be quite moral, but it is not righteousness. It is not a concept of justice. It is simply a higher view than that of immorality. So you have um, you have two trends. One goes to moral degeneracy through legalism and asceticism, and in its intellectual counterpart, that's rationalism. And on the licentious part and antinomian part, it goes to irrationalism and mysticism and an immoral degeneracy. 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years ago in America, this was the trend culturally was towards legalism and rationalism. But once the rationalism of modernism worked and the rejection of the rationalism of, and modernism worked its way through the culture, it shifted. This came after the 60s. And so you had the rise of licentiousness and antinomianism, irrationalism, and mysticism. So that uh, back in the, from about the early, you could say, trace it back even into the, some parts into the 1700s, but by the early 1800s, you had moral degeneracy that was coupled with a lot of religious and Christian legalism that dominated this country until you get into the early part of the 20th century, and I think that began to collapse after uh, World War I. And uh, it didn't manifest itself clearly until you get into the 60s, but it was there. It was gradually growing in the shadows. And then you have the rise of immoral uh, degeneracy. All of this is driven by arrogance and self-absorption. Now, I've done some modification to our arrogant skill chart. What I have put in the middle is a spiral. 
And that's really what arrogance is. It is a spiral where we may start at the top and deteriorate through as we practice and perfect the arrogant skills and go down and down and down until it destroys our souls. Begins with self-indulgence and then moves to self-justification. We indulge ourselves. We want what we want when we want it, and so we indulge ourselves, and then we justify it. We learn to give excuses for it if things go wrong or if people disapprove. We justify it. And then as we continue to practice that uh, self-indulgence, then we think that we're entitled to it. And we see this expressed through the attraction of socialism and communism. The people have the idea that they uh, deserve what somebody else has. And this is exemplified in this first person that we're going to see here in this example in Second uh, Samuel chapter 16. This is Ziva, the servant of Mephibosheth. He thinks he has a right. He is entitled to the possessions of Mephibosheth. And so he is going to make up a lie about Mephibosheth going over to the side of Absalom and tell this to David so that David will give all of uh, Mephibosheth's possessions uh, to Ziva. And David is taken in by this and this that particular test. So we see that self-entitlement and then self-deception because we start believing the lie, the lie that we're really justified, we're really entitled to this, this is really ours, and this is what develops within a culture and leads to rebellion. It led to the uh, uh, French Revolution, it led to the Bolshevik Revolution, it led to the uh, revolution in China under Mao Zedong, uh, where the offer is to provide everything and give everything uh, to the impoverished uh, classes, and yet once they get it, they don't have anything. It is an ephemeral dream. It has no content to it, and it's all based on on self-deception. And they are they become deceived by these leaders. And now what you have is a ruling elite in uh, the Soviet Union, and now in Russia, a ruling elite in all of these communist countries that now absorb enormous amounts of wealth. You see it in the totalitarianism of the mullahs in Iran, where you have, for example, the uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, and he is worth billions. Some have suggested as much as $20 billion of personal wealth that he has stolen from the uh, Iranian people. So you have... Uh, this self-deception, and you begin to treat yourself as a god, self-deification, and then the cycle just continues. You be, you're going down that spiral, and you become more self-absorbed and more self-indulgent, more self-justified. We see examples of this in Ziva, the servant of Mephibosheth, we see an example of this in Shemai, who curses David. We'll see examples of this in, we've already seen it to some degree, in Absalom. We will see it in Ahithophel, who, who betrays David. Somebody who betrays somebody is given over to arrogance. Somebody who revolts against somebody in authority, a legitimate person in authority, is operating on arrogance and human viewpoint, 
and this is Ahithophel. You also see uh, arrogance in Abishai. And the way Abishai wants to solve David's problems is also through arrogance. So arrogance is operative all around David, but David is an example of humility and grace orientation. And as I've taught as we've gone through chapters, these previous chapters, chapter 15 and on, that David is, has these various tests as he's leaving Jerusalem and each one he uh, handles pretty well, except for the one uh, with Ziva. He doesn't vet him like he uh, vetted Ittai the Gittite. And so because of that, he's taken in by Ziva's uh, deception. In Second Samuel uh, 16, f- 5 to 13, we're going to come to the test, uh, the test with Shemai. Uh, the test with Shemai here is again a test of humility uh, for uh, for David. So when we think about what's happening here, the dynamic here is we see um, Shemai's. I mean, excuse me. We see Ziva's rejection of authority. He is a servant of Mephibosheth. He is rejecting Mephibosheth's authority, and he is going to try to deceive David into um, into giving him the possessions of Mephibosheth. Before we go much further, I want to go through a couple of things about understanding uh, what is happening here. When we have arrogance, arrogance will, and when it moves towards licentiousness, produces antinomianism. Now, antinomianism is one of those big words that for a lot of people, it's not very usually user-friendly. It comes from the uh, Greek word anti or against and namas, which means law. It's against law. It's against any kind of rule, any kind of demands, any kind of rules that somebody wants to impose upon me if I think I have a better way. And so it is describes the person that rejects laws, rejects ethics, rejects morals and standards. They are become their own little God. This is described uh, vividly for us in the book of Judges. Twice we have a verse in the book of Judges that this period occurred in a time when there was um, no king in Israel, no authority, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's really a double entendre. Double entendre is a phrase that means one thing, but it can have a double meaning. And so when it says there's no king in Israel, the king was supposed to be God. Uh, There wasn't a human king yet, but the uh, theocracy under the theocratic principle, God was the ruler of Israel, and they had rejected him. So when you reject God, where do you turn for your values? Where do you turn for your absolutes? You either you turn to yourself, ultimately. There's no other place to go. You decide what is going to be right or wrong. You become the, uh, you become the higher authority, and you're the one who determines what is good and what is bad. And if you don't, then the government will. And everybody has to look to some place for the, the values of a nation, the values of a business, the values of a school, the values of any organization. Antinomianism always sets itself up as the ultimate authority. It's whatever the person thinks is right. 
And so it follows the rules it wants to follow, the way it wants to follow them, when it wants to follow them, and there usually is no consistency at all. And antinomianism is always at play when there was a re- when there is a revolution. Now, just a few moments ago, I mentioned three revolutions, the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, and the Chinese Revolution. These were very different from what are often called revolutions prior to the French Revolution. You have the Glorious Revolution in England, uh, which was uh, when they got rid of Charles II and replaced him with another king. See, they're not getting rid of... of um, they're not getting rid of the government. They recognize that Charles II was no longer abiding by the law of England. There was a very famous book written by a Puritan in the 1640s, a Puritan by the name of Samuel Rutherford, uh, wrote a book. The Latin title was Lex Rex. Lex is the word for law. Rex is the word for king. And so the title of his book was The Law is King. And this traced the development of the uh, British common law going back to the time of the Magna Carta when the barons came together and uh, had King John sign the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta is the bedrock for English liberty. And when they did that, there was a recognition of the principles principle that the king served at the pleasure of the barons and that the king was not above the law, that the king was actually under the law. So this became a bedrock principle throughout uh, English history. So when the Glorious Revolution came along, it was not a revolution like the French or the Russian or the Chinese Revolution uh, where there was a complete reversal of, of their whole history. It was the t- removing a king and because he was disobedient to the law. This is the forerunner for what is called as a misnomer the American Revolution. The American War was a war for independence. If you go back and study the history, prior to 1775, when you had the battles of Concord and Lexington, there were 10 years where the colonists were appealing to Parliament, appealing to the king to abide by the contracts and abide by the law of England. But the king, King George, had the idea that the colonists were there just to, just to feed his, his uh, coffers, and he kept raising taxes. He was violating the common law of England. And so there was appeal after appeal after appeal, and the American colonists were asserting the fact that they were English citizens, just like anyone who lived in London or anywhere in, in England. And so when, <coughs> when King George was sending troops against them to arrest Sam Adams and John Hancock and then to confiscate the arms that uh, the store stored for the militia in the Concord area, it was really a violation of the law of England. And so that, they, that was what started the violence of the war. There were other things that were done, not all of which was correct on the part of the, of the colonists, 
But for the most part, the leadership of the colonists uh, did everything they could in order to avoid a rupture with the king of England. So this was quite a difference. They were not uh, rebellious in the biblical sense of rebellion. This is why our nation has survived so long, but now we're seeing the ugly arrogance of rebellion again and again, and it is a rebellion against the Constitution. And the Constitution has virtually been ignored by judicial activists and by politicians and by presidents for the last probably 70 or 80 years, and it is gradually eroded. And so there has to be a return to that authority or we will fall apart as a nation. Arrogance indeed tyrannizes the soul of an of an individual, and antinomianism, which produce, produces moral relativism, produces a tyranny of moral relativism. And that is where we are today. We're under the tyranny of political correctness. That's a form of moral relativism. We're under the tyranny of the relativists who say everything is okay, so if you don't agree with us that everything is moral and everything is good, then uh, you're a criminal. And so this is where we're headed in terms of the assaults on the Christian church because we don't conform to their immoral uh, laws and their immoral demands. And so it is a tyranny of relativism which violates the very principles of freedom. Now, three things that we have to recognize about arrogance. First of all, all human beings are born as sinners. We all have a sin nature which is controlled and motivated by arrogance. Every human being is a sinner. Romans 3.23, as one of many verses that assert this, says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Second, arrogance is blinding. That's part of self-deception. It blinds us to the truth. We've rejected the truth and replacing it with something else. So arrogance is blinding. And the third thing we see is arrogance is tenacious. Arrogance doesn't quit. Arrogance always uh, cloaks itself in a, in, in, in a disguise. That's why it is uh, self-deception. It is blinding. And so in this section, we see this contrast uh, going back and forth um, between uh, the arrogance of uh, David's enemies and some of David's own people and the humility of David. Now, in the previous lesson, I talked about how David understood authority orientation. This is critical. That There are two occasions in 1 Samuel 24, 6 and following, and in 1 Samuel 26, 5, where we see uh, David has the opportunity to take Saul's life. Saul has become an unjust ruler. Saul, Saul has become a tyrant. Saul is in rebellion against God, and he has been accused by the prophet of God. Uh, this, this is the sin of rebellion, which is like the, the sin of witchcraft. And so he has done exactly what Satan uh, did. He has rebelled against the authority of God. And in both situations, David gets this opportunity, and he has his men who want him to go ahead and kill uh, kill Saul. 
In the second instance, it's Abishai, the same commander that's going to show up here in this particular episode with Shimei. And Abishai hasn't learned anything. He's still as arrogant and he is still as much in rebellion against God's authority as he ever was. So we have, again, this contrast being depicted here uh, very vividly between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint, between arrogance and humility. And we will see the... uh, we will see the humility of David. We saw it in the episode with Ziva in the first four verses. And now we're coming to the the last test of these tests, which is the test of Shimei, the sixth test in 2 Samuel 16, 5 to 13. There we read, Now when King David came to Baharim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. So Baharim is not sure, is, is, is a location that's uncertain today, but it, it's mentioned about six times in, in Samuel and 1 Kings in relation to uh, Shammai. It is located somewhere between uh, Jerusalem and the fords of the Jordan, going across to the other side, what today is the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And so this is a small village where Shemai lives. He is, uh, it's probably a little bit to the north of the road that is there today, but that area uh, just outside of Jerusalem on the north side, see Jerusalem sits right on the border between Judah, the tribe of Judah in the south, and the tribe of Benjamin in the north. And so once you would go out of Jerusalem, you would be in the territory of Benjamin. And Saul was a Benjamite, and uh, Shammai is a Benjamite. And so he is still loyal to the uh, family of Saul. In verse 6 we read, And he threw stones at David. So he is stoning David because in his mind, see, this is what arrogance does. It distorts and perverts your values. In his mind, David is a criminal because David's ultimately responsible for the death of Saul. And in his mind, David is a murderer. That's what he's going to call him here. He calls him a murderer. And that means that he is guilty of a capital crime and he should be killed. He's thinking not just of Uriah the Hittite. He's thinking about about Saul, that's that's uh, that's the focus of his of his thinking. He's identified as Shemai, the son of Gera. In Hebrew, that would be Shemai ben Gera. He is a descendant of Benjamin, and he is within this uh, clan. There's a clan of Gera within that tribe, and that was likely a name that was common among those in that particular clan. So he comes out, he is uh, cursing uh, David, and he is cursing continuously as he came. Now, the word that is used here for cursing is a Hebrew word, kalal. And kalal means to treat someone with disrespect. It's not the harsher word. The harshest word for a curse is arar. But here it is kalal, and this just, when you treat someone lightly, treat someone with disrespect, then that's what's going on. And so he's showing this disrespect to David by throwing stones at him. And all the people and all the mighty men are on 
surrounded. So he's he's got he's got he he's got such such arrogance that he goes right in the middle of David's bodyguards of his mighty men and he is throwing rocks and stones at David and cursing him and calling him names. And in verse 7, I've got the translations from some different texts there. He just says, come out, come out. He's telling him to leave, leave, get out of Israel, go away. You bloodthirsty man, you rogue. That's how the New King James Version translates it. The um, Holman Christian Study Bible says, get out, get out, which is a better translation of that phrase. And then they combine the last two statements and call him a worthless murderer, as if the second statement is an adjective for murderer. But literally means, you murderer, you worthless man. He's calling him two things. He calls him a man of Belial. So Belial was just a, a, a curse word for somebody that was destructive, somebody who was chaotic, somebody who would just cause cause a lot of problems. And so as he is uh, attacking David, we see this, uh, this is the essence of arrogance. This is what happened with Satan in his original rebellion when he rejected God's authority and, and attempted to usurp it. And what I've taught about Satan's rebellion in the past are two things. Autonomy, we're going to have alliteration here, autonomy and antagonism. Autonomy emphasizes independence. We want to be independent of any authority. That's what arrogance is. It sets ourselves up as the, as the, uh, as the authority. And so th- we want that independence from God in autonomy we typically will replace God with some other deity. Now, in self-deification, we become the deity. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. But in the ancient world, that, that was often manifested by someone setting up a god. They would make their own god. They would go cut down a tree, and then they would either, through their own skill, shape it and make it into an idol, or they would... Uh, have somebody else do it. And it's interesting, Isaiah points out the irrationality of this in Isaiah 44, 14, and 15. And here they're showing that you go out, you cut down a tree, you find a nice chunk of the tree that you're going to carve out, and you're going to make that an idol. You cut off everything else, and you take that in the house and burn it for firewood and for, for warmth and for cooking. So Isaiah said, talk, describes this idolatry. He says he cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak as well, and he secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine, and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he, make, indeed he makes a god and worships it. So here he takes part of this same tree and he ma- he cooks with it, burns it up to nothing, and the other part of it he turns it into a god, makes it into a car- carved image, and bows down and worships it. That's the irrationality of arrogance. Now what happens in verse uh, eight here is that the Lord is what Shemai continues to uh, curse David, and he says, the Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul. Well, he's half right. 
The Lord is the source of David's troubles because the Lord is bringing discipline upon David because of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and because of the conspiracy to have Uriah murdered and the murder of Uriah. But it's not because of the house of Saul. So what we are seeing here on the one hand is that uh, Shammai is demonstrating the fact that he is totally independent of God's norms and God's values. He has rejected God, and he's just making stuff up as if he uh, if he were God. He is acting independently of God's plan and assigning to God's plan some other rationale. He rejects God's plan to choose David and set David up as king. So he says, God, you're wrong. You've got a bad plan here. You can't replace Saul with David. So he's making himself a God that is greater than greater than than uh, uh, than God, and he's going to judge God and judge his motives. This is the same thing that happens in anti-Semitism. There are people who reject God's plan of choosing the Jewish people. They may not like the Jewish people, and they say, God, you made a bad plan, and so we reject that, and we're going to blame the Jews for all the evil in the world, and we're going to persecute and destroy them. This happens in arrogance, that people reject those who are aligned with God, and they hate them, and they are antagonistic to them. This is the second thing. You have the autonomy uh, independence from God, and that's followed with the second component of arrogance, which is antagonism to God, antagonism to God's plan, antagonism to God's people, antagonism that, to anything that reminds you of God. And so we often see this, that when uh, certain people run into a situation where Christians are taking a stand for something, they just go ballistic. And they're free to do that today because there are so many more people in our country who are not believers. And we will see this more and more as they as they react. They react to anything that happens. For example, when there is an election that happens, they consider it to be illegitimate. This goes back as far back as the election in 2000 when George, uh, George W. Bush was elected and we had the whole issue with the hanging chads and everything else down in Florida and the Supreme Court finally had to make a decision and the Democrats hated it. They rebelled against it. They called George Bush illegitimate and they got more and more angry over the next eight years. And then we saw exactly what they thought of the Constitution and everything else when they elected uh, Barack Obama to be the president. They would not even allow people to see any of the background information on him. His college, university, law school records and everything were sealed. His, uh, all of his background, uh, all of his um, applications for scholarships, everything was sealed. So to this day, we still don't know anything for sure about uh, the college career and the background of Barack Hussein Obama. And so this is totally inconsistent with what is expected of every other, uh, every other candidate. And so anybody who even questions that uh, becomes 
the focus of all of the vitriol and all of the bile and all of the hate and all of the anger of the left because somebody wants them to to abide by the law and to be uh, to be consistent and so this is a major problem and it, so you have these two attributes of arrogance uh, autonomy or independence from God and antagonism and antagonism breeds anger because somebody's going to tell them what to do and when people tell you what to do and it's not what you want to do then the natural sin nature response is anger and resentment and that breeds bitterness and that is exactly what we see in Shimei. Uh, David represents God and Shimei has rejected God and rejected the authority of God and so he is antagonistic to David and that antagonism turns to anger and resentment. He hates and despises David. He has, he has nurtured this anger for years. He's living in a fantasy world that Saul should continue to be king and Saul's dynasty should have continued and this is just the, uh, the wrong plan and he has refused to accept God's election or God's choice of David as the king of Israel. And so we also see this today as Bible-believing Christians continue to stand by the historic, traditional, biblical Christian view of gender issues and of homosexuality. And so when those who reject God find out about it, they just go ballistic and they accuse Christians of all kinds of hatred and bitterness and uh, totalitarianism and tyranny just because they are in rebellion against the authority of God. So this anger and resentment that comes builds to a vindictiveness that will bear a bitter fruit in our nation in just a few years. We're going to see this explode probably within the next decade. And so hostility and increased opposition will come and perhaps even uh, overt persecution of Christians. So what we see here is how that that arrogance, that self-deception creates this fantasy that Saul should have continued, and now God is getting at David and has delivered the kingdom into the hands of Solomon. So then he, he blames and David and says, so now you're caught in your own evil because you are a murderer. That's what bloodthirsty man means. He's a murderer. We see the same kind of arrogance, uh, which we looked at a minute ago in Romans 1, and 23. You reject God into the vacuum in your soul. Something has to come in. It's your own authority, your own self-deification. And so you start worshiping uh, anything that's part of God's creation instead of the creator. And the, actually Romans 1, uh, 25, 24, 25, 26 go on to talk about how they exchange the worship of the, uh, of the creator for the worship of the creature. Now as we look at this and an- analyze what is actually going on here, uh, we see how the dynamic works within uh, within the sin nature. In Genesis chapter three, eight through ten, 
we see the initial emotions that took place among Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned. In verse 8, we read, and they, notice the plural pronoun, they, Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife, both of them, Adam and his wife hid themselves. So they ran and hid. You run and hide out of fear. That's what comes out in verse 10. They, they run and hide from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, where are you? Now, God knew where they were. He's omniscient, but he wants Adam to pay attention to where he is, that he's not with God. God had come and visited them every single day, and they, they welcome God always, and now they're running from him. Something has happened. God's pointing that out. And Adam replied, he said, I heard your voice in the garden. You notice a shift? They, Adam and his wife in verse 8, and now it's just Adam. I was afraid. Self-absorption. Adam, and now it's all about Adam, and he's ignoring Eve. I was afraid because I was naked and I, I hid myself. So you have th uh, three times you have the per first person singular focusing on uh, on Adam and self-absorption. See, this is what happened is sin, the lust of sin, a uh, war against the soul. And so what happens here as we get into this, this next section is that we see the human viewpoint pagan solution that is brought about uh, by Abishai. Then we hear Abishai sees this, and his self-righteousness, which is part of arrogance, reacts to what has happened with Shemai. And he says, why should this dead dog, and this is a real uh, term of disrespect in, in the Middle East, dogs are not pets. Uh, historically, dogs were scavengers, dogs were a problem, and a dead anything will make you spiritually unclean. So something that is dead is something that is unclean, and it's a dead dog who is a scavenger. So by definition, a dog would be unclean as well. So it's a double, uh, double insult. Why should this dead, dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off, uh, take off his head. So we have an interesting response here to um, by by David. Wait a minute, I'm going to skip ahead here. Okay, because I got the slide out of order. In Second Samuel 19:21, we have another episode with Shimei. This is when David is coming back. So I want you to turn with me over to Second uh, Samuel 19, and I want you to connect the dots. Write something in your margin so you can go back and find this connection. But this is when David is on his way, on his way back, and uh, Shimei comes comes up to him again. And so this begins in verse twenty one. And so uh, Shimei has uh, starts off back in verse eighteen. Shimei comes to David as David's returning to Jerusalem, falls down on his face uh, when the king crosses the Jordan, and he begs the king. He says, "Don't let my lord impute iniquity to me." Or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my 
Lord, the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. In other words, this is an insincere confession. He just doesn't want to get in trouble. We understand that David understood that because even though David is going to show him mercy now, David warns Solomon in the in 1 Kings 1 and 2 that Shimei is a troublemaker, a rebel, and he'll cause trouble, and he warns Solomon that he's going to have to uh he's going to have to have Shimei executed. And Solomon doesn't just take a harsh approach to it. He goes into this deal with Shimei and says, okay, um, we're going to take care of you. You come and you live in Jerusalem in the city of David, and we'll take care of you because of the way uh, you've been treated and everything. But if you leave the city limits, if you leave the city, then you're going to forfeit your life. And so this goes along for about three years. Everything's fine. And then somebody came to him telling him that some of his servants had run away. And and so he's going to go down to Gath to get them. And he leaves Jerusalem. And what is that a sign of? A lack of authority orientation. He demonstrates that he has not learned his lesson. And so as a result of that, Solomon executes him. So he doesn't have um, a, a happy ending. But here in 2 Samuel uh, 19, when he comes up and he basically begs David uh, to forgive him and not to bring any consequences on him, uh, Abishai shows his paganism. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered and said, Shall not Shemai be put to death for this because he cursed, that is, Kalal, he cursed Uh, the king. He cursed the Lord's anointed. And David says, uh, in exasperation, he says, what have I got to do do with you, uh, you sons of Zariah? See, he's Joab's brother, and they're always take the violent solution. And he says that you should be adversaries uh, to me today. And that's interesting because the Hebrew word for adversary is the word satan, which is the name for the uh, chief of the angels, Satan, who rebelled against God. He is the adversary of God. So he is identifying him uh, with Satan. He's acting like Satan and not in humility. This statement of... of uh, Abishai's, though, goes back to Exodus 22:28, And Exodus 22:28 says, You shall not revile God. And that uses the word kalal. Kalal is the lesser of the two words for curse. It means to treat with disrespect, to make light of. And so this command in Exodus 22:28 says, You shall not make light of God, nor curse a ruler, so it ups the ante. Cursing a ruler is arar. It's the more intense form of judgment. Don't curse a ruler of your people. And so this is what um, what Abishai says here, because he cursed the Lord's anointed. He treated the Lord's anointed with uh, disrespect, and so he should be punished. And David says, uh, in exasperation, what do I have to do with you, you sons of, Dur- uh, of Zariah? Uh, should any man be put to death today? No, this is a great day because David's coming back into Jerusalem. 
and I don't want anything like that to to mar the event. So we see that David twice passes this test, and in Second Samuel. Uh, 16.10, the king says, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? So let him curse. David says, "This is God, God allowed this to happen for him to come and curse me. It's all my fault, ultimately. This is a reminder of all of my failures, and I need to take God's discipline and not react against it in anger because two sins don't make something right. So just because Shimei is sinning, I'm not going to sin as well. And so he says to Abishai um, that my son, talking about Absalom in verse 11, who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Let him alone, let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. So he sees God's hand in bringing uh, Shemai into his presence to remind him of his failures and his sin and to teach him humility. And so he responds in humility. Verse 12, he says, It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. That is grace orientation and genuine humility. And so the episode ends as David and his men went along the road. Shemai went along the hillside opposite him and cursed him as he went, threw stones at him and kicked dust. Now just imagine the drama of this scene because it takes a while for all these people to walk over the crest of of uh, the Mount of Olives and then down the backside and all the way down the backside. Here's Shemai because he met them at the crest. And all the way down the other side, Shemai is walking along and throwing stones at David, kicking dust on him and, and cursing, cursing him. And David just responds in humility and takes it. He doesn't react in anger. He doesn't have that hostility that comes with the autonomy of God that characterizes arrogance. He is not antagonistic and hateful uh, towards Shemai. He responds in kindness to him both in chapter 16 and also in chapter 19. But remember this, he knows that Shemai is a problem, and so he will warn Solomon against him. And the way it works out with Solomon, he gives Shemai an option. He gives him the chance. He treats him well, so he shows grace orientation also to Shemai. But when Shemai violates the rules, then he forfeits his life. So there's accountability. That's divine institution number one. So next time we'll come back and get into the, the hyper-arrogance that we see in Absalom and in Ahithophel. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of the, our sin nature that this is true for every one of us. We each have a sin nature. We can each be guilty of many, many different, um, many different sins, uh, many different acts of rebellion against you. Yet in your goodness and in your grace, you have forgiven us. You have cleansed us. You have uh, saved us because of what Christ did on the cross and through the faith that we have in him. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to our own uh, sin nature, how it distracts us, how it deceives us, and how it leads us into many 
uh, foolish, wrong, and self-destructive uh, paths. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.